Good morning. Please take your Bible and turn to Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah, chapter 4. We really did do a sound check this morning, and it didn't sound like this, so hopefully things will work themselves out as we go in faith. We've been working our way through the book of Jonah And many of you have been here for this. This is the eighth sermon. We'll have nine total uh, on this book, and we've learned many lessons. Last week, we saw one of the greatest revivals in the the history of man in Jonah chapter 3. We've also been learning the theme of God's great mercy shown to pagans, pagan sailors, the Ninevites, shown to Jonah himself and his disobedience. We would expect to see Jonah leaping for joy in chapter 4 after such a great revival, but in fact, we see something of the opposite. This book comes full circle. Remember, it began with God calling the prophet to go to Nineveh, and in his disobedience, he fled to Tarshish, and now it's come full circle. It is just God and Jonah again in this chapter. So I've entitled the message, Envy Leads to Anger and depression. As I wrestled with what's going on in the heart of Jonah, what is he thinking about? Why is he so depressed? I came away with the thought that he has to be envious. And of course, it says specifically that he's angry. He wants to commit suicide. He's asking for his life to be taken. These kind of things are spawned often from envy inside of our heart. And I'll I'll develop that as we go through. Uh, One of the Scottish preachers, Andrew Bonar, has a great volume of his diary, and it's great to read diaries and memoirs of these men who have gone before. And Andrew Bonar penned this diary entry. This day, 20 years ago, I preached for the first time as an ordained minister. It is amazing that the Lord spared me and has used me at all. Now, he has used others far more than he has used me. Yet envy is my hurt, and today I have been seeking grace to rejoice exceedingly over the usefulness of others, even where it has cast me into the shade. Lord, take away this envy from me. Don't you love such honesty such as that, to be able to wrestle with this? And this is a minister for 20 years, a minister of the gospel, to be able to see the seeds of envy, to be able to pray that the Lord would uproot those seeds and to cast them out. Jonah is filled with rage and envy in our text over the mercy of God shown to the Ninevites, and he's depressed. The proverb says, he who conceals sin does not prosper. And so we see Jonah here. So let's read our text, beginning in verse 1. By the way, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 only today, um, but I will read the whole text. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity." Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city, and he sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under 
it in the shade while he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and he begged with all of his soul to die, saying, once again, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And the Lord said, You had compassion on a plant for which you did not work, in which you did not cause to grow, and it came up overnight, and it perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as animals? Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would give us understanding this day. We confess our great need, Lord, is to hear from heaven today. So let your word take root into our hearts. We pray that you would feed our very souls. We pray, O God, that we would be warned at some of these sinful attitudes and such. And Lord, that we would be those that would rejoice in your mercy, even when shown to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jonah's been proceeding through the school of God's grace. He's used in, what is it, 2 Kings 14 under King Jeroboam, right? And he prophesies, and that comes to pass. God has a second mission for him and calls him to go to Nineveh. Of course, he disobeys. The Lord gets his attention inside the belly of the great fish. There seems to be a revival, one of the most beautiful prayers in all the Bible. We find in Jonah chapter 2, which he ends and says, Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord puts him back onto dry land by having the fish vomit Jonah up. He proceeds on, he's recommissioned, he has great courage and boldness to preach the word of the Lord and, and to go through Nineveh, it's one man against tens of thousands, and there's success to his ministry. The people are repenting, they're in sackcloth, they're in ashes. It says that the word reached even the heart of the king, and that's an emotive word. In other words, it's not that a messenger came and knocked and said, here's the message that this fellow out there is preaching. No, he was moved. And the king himself took off his robes and put on sackcloth and sat in an ash heap. There were fruits of repentance in Nineveh. Serious fasting, displaying the idea of penitence and true brokenness. And so God relents. And of course, we talked about that and tried to unpack that mystery and Of course, from a temporal perspective, God responds to human action, but we know from an eternal perspective, God had chosen the means for which he would relent, i.e., Nineveh repenting. Now, we know Nineveh would be destroyed some years later, and Assyria would be the ones to come and take the northern kingdoms into captivity, but that had not happened yet. That was generations later. So today, again, we would expect this story to end in triumph after chapter 3, it's the, probably the greatest revival in all of history, you'd expect chapter 4 to be a celebration of some sort or something along those lines. And instead, we get the exact opposite. What I like about this, dear brethren, is that this is very real. It's very earthy. It's, it's something that we can relate to. Is not the Christian life often one of two, three steps forward, one step back? 
As we're seeking to progress to the celestial city, it is not a perfect straight line. There are valleys, there are stumbling blocks that come, and we see Jonah here, who I believe is a true believer in God, we see him stumbling and stumbling badly. We see him pouting and upset, which sometimes we can do when things don't go our way. You can imagine, he preaches three days through the city. He's waiting for that 40th day. What's going to happen? The suspense that's going on. And we find Jonah in this posture. So three simple points today. Jonah's discontent before God. Jonah's prayer, really a complaint before God, in verses 2 and 3. And then God speaks to Jonah in a powerful way in verse 4. So first of all, Jonah's discontent. I hesitate to even use that word. The NAS has, it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Really, those translations and the, I looked at the other translations, don't communicate the force of the Hebrew words. Let me read it for you woodenly as it appears in the Hebrew. But it was evil to Jonah, and exceedingly evil. Okay, so it's repeated. By the way, that's one of the key words that's translated different ways through Jonah. But in the eyes of Jonah, God did something wrong. (laughs) God did something evil, and he became angry over it. The anger of Jonah, you young people and some of you old people, is like a child having a temper tantrum. Things did not go his way. He's on his back. His feet are kicking in the air. He, you know, he's, he's, he's having a fit. He's demanding to have his way. He can't be appeased. So when God relents from his anger, Jonah says, I'll take that anger because you're relented. Brethren, anger is always irrational. It's very rare that you're going to have, quote, a righteous anger. We're not to let the sun go down on our wrath. Be angry and do not sin. Um, for us, typically when we get angry, it's because we've been irritated and it's typically a sinful response. Not always. I mean, we can become angry when we look at the perversion of what's going on even within the context of churches today, with homosexual marriage and all the rest, and, and, and that's a righteous anger. But here he is irrational and he's angry. Listen to what James says. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And the anger of man, what? Does not achieve the righteousness of God. Jonah is self-centered. He's hypocritical to his message as a Jewish prophet preaching. He misunderstands the extent of God's grace and and he has spiritual pride. It's, It's only Israel that deserves to be shown the mercy of God. I'm a Jewish prophet. Who were these pagan Gentiles becoming converted? James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says, Jonah had obeyed God by doing what God wanted, but God had not done what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted him to carry out that threat of destruction. See, God's mercy displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he's angry. The psalmist says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil doing. It would be like, say, for example, someone prophesied uh, in our day that the USA would be destroyed by ISIS, right? Or ISIL, whatever, over there, what's, what's going on over there. 
and yet you're sent as a prophet to go over there. The likelihood of you as a Christian prophet preaching to them to repent would be very unlikely, right? But there is a mass repentance. And you come back and you're thinking, wait, but they, they've done so much destruction. They've persecuted the church. They've beheaded so many people. They don't deserve to be shown God's mercy. That might be a modern-day parallel. Of course, we know the Assyrians were lifelong enemies of Israel. Jonah, as he went in obedience with that message of proclamation, no doubt was secretly thinking, I hope they're wiped out. I hope the threat to Israel would be removed and that God would carry out his judgment. But no, God shows mercy. Jonah is grieved because he feels like the mercy that has been shown is that that was shown to the children of Israel while they're wandering in the wilderness in Exodus 32 as they're worshiping the golden calf. God's going to destroy them. Moses intercedes as a picture of Christ for the people, and God relents of that judgment. Well, two chapters later is that glorious description of God with the beautiful attributes and how he's slow to anger, he's compassionate and long-suffering. The very words that Jonah uses here. And so he's grieved that the, the same mercy and grace and compassion that was shown to the children of God, the children of Israel, would now be wasted upon pagans. That's what he's thinking in his mind. Why should the Gentiles enjoy the covenant blessings that are reserved for us? He's a nationalist. Jewish thought was often that they alone deserve the grace of God. Why do you think Jesus was persecuted? Why do you think they kept trying to get him to murder him even sooner than the preordained time? As he would preach about compassion to the Gentiles, as he would as he would touch lepers, and, and the Pharisees and, and the scribes, of course, they were vehement towards him. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, there's this striking statement. He says, I say to you in a truth, this is when he's unwelcome in his hometown, I say to you in a truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a famine came upon the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside of Israel, to a woman who was a widow. He goes on in verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. Why? Because what is he saying here? that there was a time in Israel's history where they were given to such idolatry and to such perversion that God was blessing Gentiles outside of national Israel. And he has the same problem. One commentator said the Lord might be rejoicing with the angels in heaven over the sinners being saved in Nineveh, but Jonah is filled with bitterness and discontent. Do you remember the parable? We don't have time to read it. We might read it next week in our scripture reading. But in Matthew chapter 20 of the laborers in, in the field, remember that? Where what they would come and then they would come at different times and be sent out. And finally, the last group only had to work an hour. And yet they were all paid the same. And do you remember the ones that have been laboring and toiling in the sun for 12 hours were grumbling? Did, and he says, did you not agree to work for one denarius for this amount of time? Yes, that's what we agreed. Well, how does it say it? It says, why are you envious of my generosity? 
I'm paraphrasing here. If I want to pay the person that worked one-twelfth the time you did with the same wage, you're envious of my generosity. It has nothing to do with what we agreed upon. That's another picture of envy. You see, in Jonah's mind, there's two categories of sinners. You have the mostly pretty good, kind of got it together, kind of religious type of people who mess up every now and again. And then you have the heathen. You have the pagans, right? So in his mind, there's two other two categories. And we kind of make distinctions like that today, don't we, with who we interact with, right? I mean, Bob at the um, in the engineering department, he's such a nice guy. I mean, he's not saved. He's got marital problems. It's, I, I could share the gospel with him, and it would be more likely that he'll be converted than the prostitute who happens to be a drug addict. And so we begin to make distinctions within our mind who's savable and who's not. God is pleased to save people from the gutter. God is pleased to save the heathen even, to glorify and to magnify his beautiful, wonderful grace. Why are we called trophies of grace in Ephesians 2? Because we all came from such deplorable backgrounds, and God is pleased to save us. And so sometimes we can think mass murderers and the Hitlers of the world and, and, and all of this, they don't deserve to be saved. But that's the very thing that Jonah is given to. And the Pharisees did as well on another occasion in Mark 2. In verse 16, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to the disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Notice the disciples don't answer. Jesus, hearing this, answers. And Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who think that they're externally righteous, that they're good, do not need a physician. They do not need help. It is those who know that they're sick, know that they're wounded. They know the depravity of their own heart and how they're prone to wickedness and they're prone to sin. They're prone to carnality and carnal thinking. That's what the gospel, that's who the gospel's for. It's like that elder brother we read a moment ago in the prodigal son story. Of course, the younger son, you know, gets a lot of the focus and, and it's wonderful. He repents. He comes to the air of his way and he comes back. And then the father's love is magnified so much in that parable. And then just sort of added on at the end is the older brother's response. The older brother says, well, wait a minute. I've always been by your side. I've never squandered everything. And, and you've never done this for me. Isn't it just remarkable to be sure, the older brother resents the father's mercy that is being shown to his own brother because he had never run off. Is that a picture of envy as well? He's envious. Where's my feast? Where's, my, where, where's the celebration for me? I've stayed by your side. And of course, it ends because the theme of that which is lost has been found, right? But that older brother, given to envy, the Pharisees, given to envy. Jonah, given to envy. And ourselves, if we admit it, sometimes we are so prone to being jealous and envious of others. 
whether it's in the workplace, whether somebody's being promoted beyond you, whether you're, you're, you're seeking to raise your three or four or five children and, and you see another mom that just seems to have it all together and the kids never move in church and yours are squirrely and wiggly and, and seem like they go number two two times as often and all of that and you're always in diapers and, and, and you can't hardly get your head above ground and you're envious of the family that just looks so perfect. What do they do? Are they robots? What's going on, right? You, you, you begin to think, what are they, are they drugging the kids before they bring them to church? You, you know, your, your mind, I mean, envious, to be envious is inconsistent with the gospel. Love hopes all things and believes all things. Take opportunities to go and connect with those people. Share burdens with one another and seek to learn. It hinders our spiritual growth. When you're allowing envy to reside in your heart or it's any type of sin, really, it's going to hinder your spiritual growth. And you can become like a cane, become so angry that you'll murder. Many Christians are like this. They'll obey from sheer necessity, but they have no joy in the will and purposes of God. And this seems to be what the character of Jonah is. So let's move on to Jonah's complaint quote, prayer, in verse 2. Let's read it again. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah reveals the real reason why he fled. I love how this author sort of kind of, he kind of connects the second or third verse in the, in the book now and gives us the, the answer here later where he keeps our attention and the unexpected often happens. And that's the way the whole book has been. He ran, dare I say it, because he didn't like his theology. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were so compassionate. I knew that you, of all the gods out there, that you are the one true God, but you are the one who will show compassion to the wicked. And I don't like those wicked. And so he runs. He runs. But there's a distinction. In chapter 1 of verse 3, remember, he ran away from God Pagan sailors are saying, wake up, pray to your God. There's no record of him praying whatsoever. It's not until he's into the sea, swallowed by the fish, that he begins to pray. Here, it says that he prays to God. He's not running, he's praying to God. So there's been some spiritual growth. There's still a lot to work out with Jonah, right? But there is a distinction from chapter 1 of verse 3. Yet it appears with every word he sinks himself deeper and deeper. His prayer to God is the very opposite of the praise and thanksgiving that we see in chapter 2 just erupting from him, beautiful weaving together of several psalms. This is not what we see here in chapter 4. is not the new restored, strengthened Jonah. It's the new Jonah, or the new Jonah walking in obedience. It's a new Jonah falling back into old ways, which we sometimes can be prone to do. We can do the same thing as Jonah. You ever, have you ever justified your disobedience, sometimes even with Scripture? That's what he's doing right here. <laughs> well, you know, the Word says this or that or whatever. You have an argument with your spouse. 
And so you're going to treat your wife, you know, you're going to give her the silent treatment or whatever, and you're going to punish her because she's not submitting to you, and so you're going to punish her in various ways with the way you act or your tones or vice versa. Uh, you wives, your husband, well, I know how to do it. I'll burn the dinner or whatever, and, you know, her gentleness goes out the window, and, you know, there's a silent treatment that goes on, and it's so silly, it's so petty, and it shouldn't ever happen. But we can fall into those things sometimes. Maybe you're reprimanded at your workplace, and you, you feel like you're being overlooked at promotions, and then something comes up to where, you know, the, the theft or something like that. Well, I just, I'll take these pens, or I'll take this, or I'll print off a bunch of books for homeschool or something, and you justify it for a good cause, and after all, they're not paying me enough anyway, so, you know, and you do stuff that you know your employer would not be pleased with. You have to be careful about justifying our sin. Ironically, Jonah gives a sound summary of the character of God here. Five glorious qualities of, of, of God. Many of these attributes, he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents at calamity. But there's one clear difference, brethren. This is not coming from a heart of adoration and praise. It's coming from a heart with accusation to Almighty God. So there's a difference. He's got a twisted motive, as it were, to show that God was wrong and that Jonah is right. In fact, if you just flip back a few pages to Joel, we looked at this last week, chapter 2. Look at the similarities here. Totally different context, of course, but in verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting in evil. You can see how the five qualities are listed in the exact same order right there. And then verse 14, who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. There's another parallel. Parallel, of course, as I've already made reference, this short prayer in verses 2 and 3, the counterpart to most of chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, at least both prayers of Jonah um, exalt the mercy of God. In chapter 2, he's exalting the mercy of God, and waters have encompassed me. I descended down. He says, when I fainted away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple those who regain, regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed to pay. Salvation is of the Lord. But here, here he detests the mercy of God because the mercy of God has been shown on the wrong people in his mind. Would you listen to Pastor Spurgeon from 130 years ago? Oh, beloved It is a happy thing to be free from envy. Envy is a curse which blighteth creation. Even Eden's garden itself would have become defaced. Envy tarnishes the gold. Envy dims the silver. Should envy breathe on the hot sun, it would quench it. You see what he's saying here? He's grasping at words to say the the terrible nature of envy that it will eat you up inside if it's not dealt with.
And then this key word, loving kindness. See that abundant and loving kindness at the end of verse 2. A very, very important theological word in the Hebrew. One that speaks of, of God's loving, undying love for his covenant people and the covenant faithfulness with those people that bind that can never be broken. And, and it's a beautiful word that occurs, has said in the original, referring to this covenant relationship with his chosen people. And so, when Jonah says, actually, near the beginning, this is what, what I said, it's literally, this is my word. And so, there's a little play on words at the beginning of verse chapter 3, where he's told to go and preach God's word. He's saying, this is my word. In fact, the word I, me, and my occur nine times in this prayer. So, where's his focus at? <laughs> oh, he lists some attributes, he lists some characteristics of God, but it's all about me, <laughs> It's so self-absorbed and self-focused. It's as though he puts himself behind a judge's bench and says, I am the theological judge and advisor. Let me judge if what you're doing is right. And then in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. You see, what we have a picture of here is because of Jonah's sin, an unconfessed sin, and this bitter envy deep down inside is that it has led to what? Very common in our day, depression. Depression. Depression is a terrible enemy. How far has he fallen? He, he's so bitter over God's grace that he's in a rage, he's irrational, and he's not saying the right things. He's accusing God. And there's a similar thing, play on words as um, uh, Paul would anticipate objections in Romans 9 where he says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And as we read the book of Jonah and we try to discern the very character of Jonah, it's as though we come away and we say, is this guy bipolar? What is wrong with him? I mean, why is he not getting it? Depression is something that is very, very real and that many people struggle with. Um, in fact, some of the greatest theologians and dead guys that I love and have read struggled with depression, various seasons of depression, not to mention ill health and all of that, and yet God used them mightily through that. Depression is something that is very real and, and should be dealt with, and I'm not talking about being medicated necessarily, okay? In some cases, that might be appropriate. In most cases, it makes the situation worse. But God's word has the answers to it. Listen to the heart of the psalmist. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Many other texts can be cited, but depression can also lead to being suicidal. I heard of a test case at a biblical counseling conference this last weekend not a test case, a real case, the name's changed to protect the innocent, obviously, but of a lady in her late 30s that was so depressed, she actually told the counselor that if, if something doesn't change by next year, I'm not going to be here, that, you know, threatening suicide. And Jonah appears to be suicidal. I mean, he's asking God to take his life from him, but he mentions it twice. I mean, he actually is beginning to think death is better than life for me. And those who are tempted to that, that's exactly what their thoughts are, right? I'd rather be beyond this life because it's better for me. 
This cry to die is repeated in verse 8, and we'll t- take some more time next week on it. But it just it, the point is, it shows the depth of his despair. Ed Welch, who's written some great counseling books, says this, some hopeless people who anticipate only death cite Scripture that says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. But Christ is not what hopeless people want. It's not what they really want. The God talk is misleading. And why would he say that? Because you could seek God now. You can have him in the fullness. Read the book of Ephesians. Read the Psalms. He is available now. He is our great high priest who is there, who who is interceding for us, who we have 24-hour access to. Don't use a stupid excuse like that. I I want to go and be with Christ, and so therefore I'll self-murder. No. That's folly. That's foolishness. But Jonah essentially is saying, here's my resignation papers. I've had enough of this prophet business. (laughs) Death is better than life for me. Like a sergeant that goes AWOL, he wants to run. He wants to escape. Another way to put it is over my dead body. Jonah's sinful reaction to his marvelous grace. Now, there's an added concern that could be in play here. Some of the commentators mention it. But the whole idea that the city was spared, right? He's preaching this message of judgment. The city is spared. What about his reputation? Of course, in Israel, the test of a prophet is if a prophecy did not come true, then that's a false prophet, right? Um, Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 13 But that's not really the case here, because these are pagan people. Uh, Maybe Jonah's thinking, I'll be made fun of. I mean, here's the prophet from the fish that came walking through our city for three days. you know. And then, look, that didn't happen. But of course, we know that there was true revival. There's no way you can get away with chapter 3 and with saying that this was a false conversion or whatever. And so there's none of that that would happen as well. The irony is the cause of his bitter anger is the goodness of God, which he himself experienced in dramatic fashion, deep in the sea, in the belly of the great fish, when he was saved from drowning. You see, Jonah, we see him at his best when he's facing affliction, when he's facing difficulty and trial. In chapter 2, right? He's, chapter, at the end of chapter 1, he's sinking down. We left off, and then we came back. God appoints a fish to swallow him. He's in the belly of the fish with the digestive juices and all of that, and God gets his attention, and he begins to praise God. He's not asking, please get me out of this. You know, He's just praising God for who he is. The Lord uses affliction and difficulties in our life to draw us close to him, to give us, as it were, perspective on the character of God. The psalmist says, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. You see, when things are always going well, it's like our ears begin to clog up. We're not learning the lessons that God would have us learn until we trip up, until there's some affliction that comes into our life, some suffering. Of course, in verse 3, he's also trying to echo that cry of Elijah. If you noticed when we read that in 1 Kings 19, um, in Elijah's case, of course, he says, I'm, he adds, I am no better than my father's. Elijah is asking, of course, he's running from Jezebel, just had the great experience of 450 prophets of Baal. 
And, and so he's, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. That was from a heart of zeal for the passion and glory of God and the people of God given to the worship of Baal all around him. And what he's saying is that Israel's been like this. I thought I would make a difference. I didn't make a difference. Of course, there's a whole beautiful picture and study of depression for Elijah in 1 Kings 19 there too. But Jonah is no Elijah. He doesn't have that. He has just had great success in his ministry, and he is spurning God's goodness in his heart and wants to leave this life. So we've seen the discontent, the the rage, the anger that he has, and then his prayer or complaint, as it were. But the Lord asks a profound question, and it's really an answer to what, not a direct answer, but it really answers Jonah's prayer. We're just going to look at it briefly. In verse 4, he says, The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be anger? To be angry? It's the good reason is really good pleasure. Do you have good pleasure? Do you have good reason to be angry? Just a simple question he asked. One of the commentators says, Yahweh's question is an answer to Jonah's prayer, which bypasses the explicit petition and goes right to the heart of the problem. It's sort of like that parable in Matthew 20. Am I, can I not be generous with what is mine? Consider who we have seen take God's word like Jonah has and to try to turn it around on God. Remember Jesus in the wilderness? (laughs) Remember the devil trying to take God's word to justify getting Jesus off mission? Remember that? The first temptation, oh, turn stones to bread. Of course, uh, Jesus quotes the scriptures, no man shall not live by bread alone. Satan quotes a scripture out of context. Um, it's Psalm 91. Oh, throw yourself down and, and you know, he won't allow you to, to get hurt or whatever. Again and again, and Satan, what he's doing is he's twisting scripture and trying to use the scriptures to get Jesus off base, to offer him, as it were, a kingdom without a cross. And Jonah really is doing the same thing. We must be careful when we begin to justify ourselves and examine our hearts, look for seeds of envy and jealousy and anger and and all of that, and and to put the Scriptures up against what we're facing. In fact, anger is just a, a terrible sin. Do you realize some of the stuff that happens when people are angry, the violence that happens with uncontrolled, unbridled anger, murders, theft, Rapes, all kinds of stuff. And and we have to deal with our anger. And Some people just explode. Some people keep it in, keep it in for a long time, and then like a tea kettle or something, you know, you know, it just explodes and goes off. In counseling, I've seen people so volatile inside, they're trying to hold it in, and that it erupts at some point. It often ends up erupting, and it's not pretty. And there's one other application before we get to our application, and that is our hearts need to be such to where we have a forgiving spirit, okay? Um, we, we must have this attitude towards our fellow man to cultivate a spirit of forgiveness, and that's very important. Well, in conclusion, two things. One illustration that Dwight L. Moody told over 100 years ago, uh, he, he said that there was once two eagles that were flying, One was a much better flyer than the other one. 
And so the, the one that couldn't fly very well, the first one sees a, uh, a hunter with a bow, and he says, can you shoot down that eagle up there? He says, well, I, I need a feather. So he pulls out a feather from his wing and gives it to him. It's a fable, of course, right? Um, and then he shoots the arrow. It doesn't quite go far enough. He says, well, I need more feathers. And so what happens is the first one just pulls out so many feathers because he's so envious and jealous of the one that can fly well to give the bowsman extra feathers that then now he can't fly. And, of course, the hunter just says, well, this is a much easier target and kills the first one who was so envious giving up of his feathers. Listen to Spurgeon again. The cure for envy lies in a living under the constant sense of the divine presence. Worshiping God and communing with him all the day long, however long the day may seem, true religion lifts the soul into a higher region where, that, where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires more elevated. Now listen, the more of heaven there is in our lives, the less on earth we will covet. The fear of God casts out envy of men. Well, as we said, we've come full circle. God and Jonah, here together. Um, I, for the sake of time, I won't turn there, but if you could just write down Psalm 73 and look at that this afternoon. Psalm 73, how the psalmist goes through these different shifts um, and look at that. It was when he came into the house of the Lord that he saw the end of the wicked and their apparent prosperity that he was envying. Lastly, we must fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. A bloody Savior dying on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin. That's what we need to focus on. We need to focus on, on how great my sin is before judging whether someone else deserves God's mercy or not. What about my sin? What about the greatness of a Savior who has died for me? Thousands and thousands of sins that we have committed, he has taken upon himself. Yes, what we need to see here is the greater Jonah. We need to see Jonah as a type of Christ. Christ refers back to it again, three days, three nights in the, in the belly of the great fish. So too will the Son of Man, as he would die and rise in victory from the grave. We have salvation in him and in him alone. He alone fulfilled all righteousness. You can never earn your way to heaven. It is not by good works. It's by the work of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is not his to forgive the sins of men as he sees fit. Are you here today and have you believed in Jesus? Have you trusted him? Have you embraced him by faith? Have you seen him? Through the eye of faith, you see him on these pages. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you believe that? Come to him. He casts none away who come to him in simple faith and trusting in him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we must never look at any sin in our past life in a way except which leads us to praise God and to magnify his grace in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your kindness to us, Lord. We realize that we deserve nothing, but you have given everything. We thank you for the salvation that we enjoy, and Lord, we would ask that you would 
Help us to examine our own hearts. Search us, O God. Areas of bitter jealousy, areas of enviness, areas of coveting, areas of resenting the blessing of you upon others. Lord, purge that from us. Even as you would prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table, Lord, we pray that you would help us to cast that off, to confess it now. Lord, areas where we want to take matters in our own hands rather than going to you, Lord, help us to deal with those things as well. God, we confess that if it was upon our performance that we would all be damned to hell, how we thank you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for his perfect righteousness. We thank you for his atoning death. Lord, we thank you for the ongoing intercession and the union with Christ that we have even now. We thank you that he is a risen Savior. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he intercedes for us. Lord, help us to see such love and beauty in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We would like to.